morning, I want, to, I want to talk to you about one of the most powerful attitudes a person can take, uh, an attitude that can literally change the people around you. It's, it's the attitude of selflessness, to give with no expectation of return. There is an incredible power in a person who is selfless, who does something for someone else, and that person feels the impact of that. I, I remember when I was, it's sad that it took me this long, I was about 12 or 13 years old when I, I first felt what, it, what selflessness looks like when I just came to a realization of something that had been done for me for a long, long time. It was, it was a baseball game. So I, I, baseball was my sport growing up. I loved playing baseball. And it was a Friday night, and we were at the, the baseball fields, and my team was playing. And I, I looked over, and I saw my dad. And he had his coach's uniform on because he was the coach of my team. He'd been the coach of my team for a number of years. And I looked over in the stands, and I saw my mom and she was dressed up like a black cat because we were the black cats. And there she was cheering her little brains out. And both my parents had full-time jobs. And on Friday night, the last place they wanted to be was at a ball field. They wanted to be kicking up their feet, just relaxing. But they knew how much I love baseball. And they thought, if this is a way we can serve and love on our son, and we're going to do this. And I, for whatever reason, it just hit me in that moment. And I saw my parents are sitting right down here. And I felt for the first time selfless love. I realized all that they were willing to sacrifice because they loved their little boy. And it just hit me, it overwhelmed me. This is what it feels like to be loved. To have somebody do something for you with no expectation of return. I know not all kids get to get that. Children, when you realize it, go tell your mom and dad thank you. Because we have been loved, so many of us selflessly by our parents. I had that realization and it changed me. It opened up my eyes to the blessing I'd been given because I experienced selflessness. When we're selfless with somebody else, it can literally change them. I mean, utterly change them. Even sometimes when it's in small ways. I remember, I remember this vividly. We were at Cracker Barrel, and we, we go once a year, right leading into the Thanksgiving time, where we all, eight of us in our tribe, we go to Cracker Barrel, and we have our breakfast together. kind of kicks off the holiday season and we were there having a great time eating our big old meal, and we were about to leave, and I asked for the check. And the waitress said, I'm sorry, sir, there's no check. Somebody else has anonymously paid for your meal. Now, there, there are a lot of us. <laughs> like this is a, that's an expensive meal to pay for all eight of us. And I was blown away. I, I, I'll never know who it was. They chose to stay anonymous. And it just, like our table just erupted in excitement that somebody would see us and love us and do this selfless act for us just to bless us. You know what I did? I turned around, I bought somebody else's meal because I wanted to pass it on. I wanted somebody else to experience what I'd experienced. Because when you, when you feel a selfless act, it, it changes you. Like you, you can't walk away from that the same. And, and here's what's so incredible about selflessness. It doesn't matter what your belief system is. It doesn't matter who you are or where you're from. You respect it. If you're Christian, if you're Buddhist, if you're Hindu, if you're Muslim, if you're Jewish, if you're atheist, if you're agnostic, none of those matter. When you see selflessness, you automatically respect it. All of us do because we're amazed by somebody who would do something with no strings attached. Because typically when somebody does something, we're always kind of asking, what, what are you in? What are you trying to get out of this? But when you realize it's, it's genuinely selfless, there's no way a person can get credit for it, you're, you're overwhelmed by it. And this is the number one reason I believe people through the history of time since Jesus stepped on this earth respected him, whether they were Christian or not. If you talk to people of different faiths, most of them will tell you they respect Jesus. They may not always like his followers, but they like Jesus. 
And the reason they like Jesus is because they see in a man selflessness, and they're drawn to it. In fact, that's the characteristic I want you to write down. We, we are on the 11th of 12 characteristics. I can't even believe it. We're almost at the end of this journey. But characteristic number 11 is one of the most powerful characteristics that if we imitate, we'll see the power of God. Here's what it is. Jesus served everyone but himself. That was his character. You can look at the scriptures and so easily see this. Jesus served absolutely everyone except himself. He was selfless. There, there wasn't a selfish bone in his sinless body. He was constantly serving. I mean, I, I could go through the Gospels and point out dozens of times where you see him serving lepers and serving outcasts, people who could never pay it back to him. Look, I mean, look at the cross. Here he is serving the very people, spitting in his face and rejecting him, doing it because he loved them, serving everyone else except himself. I could have chosen any number of passages of Scripture, but as I was looking at the life of Jesus, it felt to me like there was one particular one where he not only shows us selflessness, he turns around and tells us to follow him in it. And it's John 13. So I want you to grab your Bibles. I want you to open it up to the Gospel of John. There are four books in the New Testament called the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's the fourth one. We're going to start off in chapter 13. <clears throat> now, before we read it, I, I want to give you a little bit of context to it so, so you understand as we step into it what's taking place. So this is Jesus in the upper room with his disciples for the, the Seder meal, the Passover meal. The next day, he's going to be crucified. And he knows that he's at the end of his journey and he's about to die, and he's trying to get his disciples ready for it. But his disciples are utterly clueless that he's about to die, which is pretty ironic because he's told them now like three times, I'm going to die, and then I'm going to rise up from the dead. And for whatever reason, they hear it again and again, just whoosh, right over their heads. What do you mean you're going to die? Like, I told you, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, and they don't see it. So instead of being ready to carry on the mission, instead of feeling the heaviness of that moment, it says, I'm not going to read Luke chapter 22, but if you were to go to Luke 22, it says, immediately following this meal, an argument among them breaks out about who's the greatest of the disciples. I mean, think, think about this for a moment. Now, Jesus in the upper room has just now had a conversation with the disciples, said, see this piece of bread that symbolizes my body, which is going to be broken for you. See this cup, it symbolizes my blood, which is going to be shed for you. This heavy moment, I'm not, I'm not going to drink it again until I come in, in the new kingdom. He's, he's given this heavy moment, and they take it all in and immediately go, dude, I'm so much better than you are. You got nothing on me, Andrew. I'm so, were you at Transfiguration? I don't think so, buddy. I was there. Like they're just, they're arguing about who's the greatest, completely missing all that's taking place. They were so full of themselves, which is not that hard to understand because these guys, for the first time in their lives, were hanging out with a megastar. They, they were handpicked by Jesus, the greatest rabbi of the time. Anywhere that Jesus went, crowds would flock because he was a miracle worker. Everybody wanted to see Jesus and be with Jesus. And here were these 12 guys. Every single one of them were a bunch of nobodies. Tax collectors, fishermen, country folk, and they get hand-selected by this megastar Jesus to follow him. And they, for the first time in their lives, they feel like a big deal. And they're walking around with their chest puffed out knowing they get to be backstage with Jesus, special privilege with Jesus that nobody else gets. And they're now getting full of themselves, thinking they're better than everybody else. This is why when it comes to this important meal, because they were so full of themselves, they forgot to do the thing that matters most, before you go into a meal, and it was, it was wash your feet. So that's the context. As you come to John 13, I'm going to start in verse 2. Listen to what it says. It says, During supper, while the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. 
Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Okay, I'm, I'm going to stop there. There's more to get into, but there's a lot of details. I, and I know the majority of you in this room, if you've, if you've been in church at all, read the Bible, you've heard this story before. But I think there's a lot of details that you probably haven't recognized that, you don't, that keep you from understanding the full implications of what Jesus is doing. So a little history lesson for you. Back then, the Jews, anytime they would go in to have a meal, they would need to wash their feet. This is an Asian culture. And still today, if you go to Asian cultures, I was recently in Central Asia, they did this. You go to East Asia, they do this. They take off their shoes when they walk into a home or to a room. That's how Asian cultures respond. So they would already have taken off their shoes. And now this is back in the biblical times, they wore Jerusalem cruisers, you know, sandals that they wore around the city. That took you a little bit, but you got it. So they would walk around with sandals, which meant that dirt and grime would get all up inside their, their sandals. And so their feet were nasty. Stanky is the right word for them. I mean, you just go into a room with some dirty, nasty feet, take off your shoes. So according to Jewish rites of purification, you were supposed to wash your feet before you ever went into a mill. To which some of you are going, okay, I, mean, I get it, they have dirty feet, but why do you need to wash your feet before a meal? I mean, it seems like you'd wash your hands before you'd wash your feet. Well, hand washing was a part of it too, but specifically they would wash their feet because they didn't eat meals like you and I eat meals. Like they didn't have a table that you would sit under and your feet would be nice and safe under the table and you only see like the torso up. They did something called reclining at the table. I want you to see what it looks like. We have a picture that I want to see if we can throw up here. So it probably looked a lot more like this. Now, this picture was, it was supposed to imitate the Lord's Supper. You know, we think of the, the famous picture, the Da Vinci picture, but it probably looked a whole, whole lot more like this, except for one mistake in this picture. Their feet are all clean in this picture. But from the biblical account, their feet were not clean because it says during supper, he got up to wash their feet. In other words, they were sitting around the table and their nasty, stanky feet were all up in there, ruminating and, and spreading through the, the whole place where they're eating. And no one is doing anything about it. Now, I want you to stop and think about this for a moment. This was an incredible faux pas culturally for them not to wash the feet. And there were two ways they could go about it. Either they could wash their own feet. You can take the picture down. Either they could wash their own feet, which is totally culturally acceptable. You just walk in, you get a basin with water, you just wash your feet, and you go sit down. That's fine. Or if you had a little bit more privilege or for a fancy meal, like usually the Seder meal or something like that, then you would have a servant who would be there and that servant would wash the feet of the people going into this meal. But foot washing for somebody else was always considered exceptionally demeaning and degrading. No one was forced to wash someone else's feet unless they were a servant. Inter interesting little fact for you. Uh, so these guys were, were students of Jesus who was the rabbi. There's a rabbi and then there's pupils, there's students. And the students of a rabbi, according to Jewish law, were required to serve that rabbi as if they were slaves to that rabbi. They had to do anything that rabbi told them to do, which you kind of actually see, if you remember the biblical story, Jesus tells the disciples to go get the upper room ready, go over this place, you're going to find this, get the room ready. He's telling them what they do and they get up and they go do it because the students were required to serve their master, the rabbi. But there was one thing that students were not required to do for their rabbi. And it was wash the feet of the rabbi because that was considered too demeaning and too degrading for a student to have to do even for their own rabbi. So the only one who would wash feet would be a servant or a slave or you would wash your own feet. 
Now, in this particular meal, if you, if you know the context of it, there's a lot of controversy around Jesus, and there are people who want to flock to him, and there are people who want to kill him. And so when he has this Seder meal, he knows he's got to do it in a clandestine way, kind of under the secret of night, so that people don't flock over there. And so they can't have servants. They can't have anybody else outside there, or word might get out. So there's no servant to wash each other's feet, which that should be okay because they could just wash their own feet, but there's one small problem. I think Jesus intentionally left out the command to have somebody fill the basin. It says there's a basin there because it says Jesus gets up and he fills the basin with water, but the basin was empty. And I believe the reason Jesus left it empty is because he wanted to test them. He knew their hearts. He knew they would come in and they would not, they would not wash anyone else's feet because they were busy arguing about who was the greatest. He even knew they were so prideful, no one would even think about filling up the basin with water because no one wanted that demeaning role. And so he just lets them sit in it. And in verse 2, during supper, I don't know how long he waited, but some way half through when they're eating the meal and everybody can smell each other's feet, he finally says, all right, you guys are pathetic. <laughs> let, let, me, let me do something about this. And he gets up during supper, right in the middle of the meal, and he takes off his robe. Now, when it says he takes off his robe, the robe was the sign of his role as rabbi. It was his robe of authority. He took off his robe. Then it says he, towel, he tied a towel around his waist. That was the, the clothing of a servant, a slave. And he, he went and he filled the basin with water. And one by one, he went and he washed the disciples' feet. Now, this was absolutely shocking to the disciples. They, they didn't have any kind of uh, mindset to comprehend what Jesus was doing. In fact, you see from Peter's response that it's, it's almost too much for them to bear to think about their rabbi degrading himself to this level to wash feet. I want you to read about Peter's response in verse 6 as we keep on reading. It says, He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I'm doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. So there's a couple things going on. First, you see Peter's response. He's going, are, are you really going to come wash my feet? And Jesus says, yes, I need to wash your feet. And Peter says, in the English, it translates, you will never wash my feet. But in the Greek, it's the most emphatic way to say no. Literally, it says, you will not not wash my feet. So let me give you the, the actual translation of that. There is no honking way on God's green earth, Jesus, I am ever going to let you wash my feet. That would have been the, the emphasis. That would have been the way he, there is no way I am ever going to let you wash my feet, Jesus. I'm not going to let you demean yourself and degrade yourself. You're my rabbi. I'm not going to make you do that to me. He can't fathom that Jesus would want to do this, and he wants to stop his master from making a mistake. And then Jesus says something that shocks Peter. He says, unless I wash you, you got no part with me. Now, it's in this moment that Peter realizes he's done something terribly wrong. But you don't see it originally when you read it because you're not thinking a Jewish way. So here's what Jewish people understood back then. No one would go into the presence of Almighty God to be with Yahweh if they were defiled. Because they knew through all the Old Testament it talked about they would die if they went before Almighty God in an unclean way. So there were all these rituals of purification that they would have to go through before they ever entered into the presence of God. Now, Peter, by this moment, already knows who Jesus is. Earlier in the scriptures, it says that Jesus asked his disciples, who do you guys say I am? And they throw out all these different things. But then Peter looks at Jesus and he says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. 
So Peter knows that Jesus is divine. And in this moment, whenever Jesus says, if I don't wash you, you've got no, no part with me, he realizes he has come into the presence of divinity. He's come into the presence of Almighty God, and his feet are unclean. He is ritually unpure, unclean, and he is scared to death. I, I, I might be smitten by God. He, he might strike me dead because I've, I've come into Almighty God with unclean feet. He's overwhelmed about what he's just realized. And so he blurts out what Peter would blurt out. Let's keep on reading verse 9. It says, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. So Peter responds immediately, okay, oh my goodness, what I've done, wash my feet, but wash my hands, wash my face, make me ritually pure. I, I don't want to fall in the presence of holy God. Cleanse me. See, he thinks that Jesus is talking about ritual, ritual purification. And Jesus has to help him out going, Peter, 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 you're thinking about this all wrong. This has nothing to do with ritual purification. And he says, you, Peter, you have already bathed. And he uses a Greek word, luo. That word bathe means to go underneath the water like you would be in a tub or in a pool. Back then, people did not bathe regularly at all. It was very rare. The richest of the rich bathed maybe once every week or two. The, the poor bathed maybe once a year or two, which I know we think is nasty, but that's just how they lived their life. They didn't have showers and they didn't have tubs they can just go bathe themselves in often. You would normally get bathed before a wedding or before a super huge event. That was about it. And the rest of the time, you would wash your feet, your hands, and your face. That was how you would keep clean that's why they always wore their robes and did everything to cover up the stench because they were dirty often. But those rare moments when they got to have a bath is when they were clean from head to toe. And he uses the word for bath, luo. You have been cleansed entirely. There is no dirt on you. And then he says, you're clean, Peter, but not all of you are clean. And what he's talking about is Judas Iscariot. And in that statement, he is now helping Peter understand what cleanses you isn't ritual purification. It's not even getting in water. What cleanses you is faith in Jesus Christ. Because he's saying there's one of you, talking about Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. He's saying there's one of you who doesn't really believe in me, and therefore you're not clean. But Peter, you know who I am. You know I'm the son of the living God. You believe in me, therefore you're clean. Now, before I move on with a sermon, because this sermon is talking about living out this ethic of Jesus, and it's going to be a call to service before I ever get there, I need to stop and make sure you get this part right. There are hundreds and hundreds of people in this room right now. And I know for a fact that there are some of you who are here and you feel anything but clean. There are some of you watching online right now. And one of the main reasons you're watching is because you're not sure if it's okay for you to go into a church because you feel unclean. You feel shame and guilt. There are some of you who know your sin, you know your brokenness, brokenness and you feel like you're a failure, like God can't love you, like you, you, it doesn't matter how many times you bathe and wash yourself, you're never going to get the, the junk and the crud off of you because you're defiled. You know it. And you're scared to death that God one day is going to smite you, going to hurt you because you know you're broken. And you desperately want a fresh start. You desperately want a chance to be clean. And here's what this passage is teaching us. 
There's no amount of good works we can do to make ourselves holy. There's there's no amount of church attendance we can have to make us holy. There's no amount of money we can give to make us holy. There's one thing that can make us holy. It is placing our faith in Jesus Christ to recognize that he died on a cross so that he could incur, absorb all the wrath of God as he bore all of our sins. But because he did that, when we believe in him, when we trust in him, we are bathed from head to toe. We are completely clean from all of our sins. And when the Father sees us, he sees a perfect, holy child. And we don't have to carry our sin and our shame any longer if we would just come to faith in Jesus Christ. Listen, if you're in this room, don't leave here without finding the healing and the cleansing of Jesus Christ. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all of our unrighteousness, to bathe us. We just have to ask for it. At the, at the end of this service, when it's all said and done and I've prayed over you to send you out, I'm going to be down front and I'm going to wait just in case there is someone in this room who's ready to find salvation in Jesus Christ, who's ready to have a fresh start to say, I, I need to be made new. I'm tired of the life I've been living. I need to be made new. I'm going to wait for you here. So you get your heart ready to come see me. If you're watching online, you can connect with us by fuller.org slash connect and let us know that you're ready to follow Christ. Today can be the day of cleansing for you. So whatever else I have to say, you can just cast it aside. You take care of that first. That's the most important. But I also know in this room, there are many of you who are believers in Jesus. And I want you to know what Jesus is saying to Peter here is, you're missing it. This isn't about getting clean. You're already clean. What this is, Peter, is a model for you. That's what he says in verses 12 through 17. Let's finish up the passage. See what he teaches. Verse 12. It says, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do, just as I've done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. If you know this, put it into practice, and you'll be blessed, he says. Now, he says, I've given you an example I didn't just wash your feet so your feet would, would finally stop stinking at the, at the Seder meal. I did it so you would imitate me. But he's not just talking about washing feet. He's not literally saying the most important thing for you is that you go off and wash everyone else's feet. Jesus knew cultures would change one day and this wouldn't be the main point. His main point wasn't wash feet. His main point was lower yourself, humble yourself, be willing to do what no one else is willing to do. Don't seek the place of prominence. Go down and seek the low place. This is why I believe he chose foot washing. He could have chosen any number of things to talk about the need to be humble and to serve others, but he chose foot washing because it was such a demeaning, degrading thing. He chose to go to the lowest of lows because he knew his disciples were arguing about who was the highest of highs, who was the greatest. He knew their hearts and their minds. He knew how broken and full of themselves they were. And so he says, I'm going to take you down to the lowest of lows. And he's saying, don't be like the rest of the world. Don't be jockeying for the highest position. Jockey for the lowest position. In fact, this is exactly what he says. I want to read one last passage of Scripture. It's in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 20, verses 20 to 25. Listen, excuse me, 25 to 28. Listen to what he says here. Jesus talking to his disciples. Matthew 20, 25. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and that their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. 
But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He says, the Son of Man came. I could be here, he says, to be served. I deserve service, but I came not to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. He says, therefore, you don't choose to be the highest authority. Choose to be the servant of all. Get the towel, wrap it around your waist, tie it up, and go serve everyone else. Choose to be the lowest. That's how you imitate me. Serve everyone but yourself because that's what Jesus looks like. And I believe one of the reasons why Jesus gave us this is he knew the impact that this would have on the world when there were hundreds and thousands, millions of followers of Jesus who would serve everyone but themselves. He knew that when the world saw selflessness among the followers of Jesus Christ, they would flock to them because they knew how different it was. These people don't have an angle. They're not trying to get anything from me. They just serve me with no expectation of return. He knew that it would win the world over if we would just be selfless like he was selfless. And if any people on this planet should be selfless, it is those who declare themselves to be followers of Jesus Christ. We should be the first in line. We should be beating people off with a stick to be volunteers in this church because we have so many people ready to serve. But can I be honest with you? That is not our problem. I think there's one of the reasons why people love Jesus, but they don't always know about his followers. Because we don't always look like Jesus. And this is one of the places where there are many people who do not serve anyone but themselves. I know there are good people who serve. There, there are usually at any church, our church included, if you look at the numbers, there are about 20% of the people who do 80% of the work. It's the same volunteers. They try to serve in every single ministry because they know no one else is going to do it and they're going to step up and they're going to serve. But that leaves about 80% of the people who are good people who believe in Jesus who right now aren't serving. And one of the main reasons they're not serving is they're going, well, someone else will do it. That's fine. Someone else is going to do it. Or, you know, that's just not my thing. I think one of the chief places where we see this and I'm going to drill down to specifics, not because this is the only place of service, but it's one of the most tangible places we can see, is in our children's ministry. Do you know right now we are in a crisis of volunteers for our children's ministry in our church? And maybe you didn't even know that. Right now, by God's grace, this is incredible, at our three campuses, we have over 500 children on average who come to our church between Sunday and Wednesday. 500 children, precious children, who are coming ready to be loved, ready to be served, ready to be impacted. At this campus alone, we have over 350 children on average who come every single week between Sunday and Wednesday. 350 children in the age where they're most likely to place their faith in Jesus Christ, most likely to choose to follow Jesus. And right now on this campus, we have on average about 80 volunteers a week to, to cover those 350 kids. And that includes not just leaders in the room, that includes people who check in, people who monitor the hallways, people who try to coordinate, all the different things that we have. And we're, we're in a crisis. If, if you don't know this, most Sundays when I'm not preaching but I'm still on campus, I go volunteer in the children's ministry. And let me tell you, I've seen some, I've seen some beautiful things. I've seen some volunteers who serve week in and week out and give themselves to this ministry. And they are incredible, but they're exhausted because they're carrying this big old load. And the pandemic has made it harder, not easier, because as we've come out of this the children have come back, but the workers haven't. And so we have a few people holding down the fort, and they're exhausted. 
And I'm really here to plead on their behalf to say we need more people who would be willing to step up and say, here I am, God. I'm, I'm willing to tie the towel around my waist and go in and serve. We sent a, an email out, the, the children's ministry team did, to 618 of the parents of kids who were in the ministry just asking, would any of you be willing to step up and volunteer? We, we really need volunteers. And I don't say this to shame us. I just say this to, to show reality. Six people responded to that email out of 618 saying they'd be willing to serve. I know not everybody can serve in children's ministry, and it's really easy for me to heap on guilt, and I, guilt, and I want to be cautious because there are people who serve in a lot of different ways. People who serve as greeters, people who serve leading Bible studies, people just so many different ways a person can serve. And praise God for it. But right now, that's less than 1% of those 618 who said, yes, here I am. I know there's a need. I'm willing to serve. And I just think this is indicative of something that we have going on among us where it's time for us to rise up and to serve. We had a prayer retreat a few weeks ago, a fasting retreat where we were away and we were praying, asking the Lord to move. And I don't remember who prayed it, but somebody knowing this, this came up as a, an area of prayer, knowing that we're in a crisis, praying that God would bring up volunteers and somebody prayed that there would be 100 volunteers who would step up and start to serve in the children's ministry because that's how many we need. 100 volunteers. I want to know immediately I lost my breath because I felt this pressure like I'm going to be the one who's going to have to find 100 volunteers to make it happen. And while I was praying, the Lord just said, this isn't your job, Jason. This is my job. That the Spirit is going to compel people to step up and say, here I am. Use me. And I was here on Friday morning with a couple other guys and we were praying over you. And my prayer was that there wouldn't be a single person in here who out of guilt or shame or manipulation will go, fine, whatever, I'll go serve. But that you would feel gratitude for what Christ is. And I've been served. And if this is the need, I'm going to wrap the towel around my waist and I'm going to go serve. And so in a moment, I'm going to ask some of you to do something really bold. In a moment, I'm going to ask some of you, having no answers yet. We're not going to have a finishing song. We've already taken the Lord's Supper. We're just going to finish with a chance for you to respond. I'm going to ask some of you in a moment. Not yet but to stand up before all God, Almighty God in the presence of everybody else and say, if that's the need, here I am. Use me. But before I do that, I, I want you to know what you're saying yes to. And I, I, I can't explain it nearly as well as our children's pastor can. So I'm going to have Jadira come up here with me. Uh, many of you know and love Jadira Molina. Uh, Jadira is the children's pastor here. And Jadira, we're going to get closer. We're going to be online, so we've got to get closer together. So come, come oh, over oh, here. Sorry. Okay. Um, so... Jadira has been at church here for how long now? Seven years. Seven years with her husband, Jose. Yes. Uh, and her kiddos are around here. Yeah, I see some applause uh, yeah. over here <laughs> from a son who loves his mama. Uh, but you had something pretty cool happen I last did. Sunday. T tell me what happened. I did. My youngest son, Joshua, who I was trying to look out into the audience, who's seven. There he is. <laughs> he made a profession of faith for the Lord Jesus, and he was baptized. He was baptized birthday. last Sunday. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, so there's, I mean, obviously you guys, you see the impact yes. of the children's ministry that you guys pour into your, your children, but so do mm -hmm. volunteers and people around. And, and I, I know that here's an ocean of people that you would, you would want to tell every single one of them to serve in this ministry. Right. But I know there's also a lot of confusion about what, is, what does it mean to serve in the children's ministry? Because there are a lot of people who go, look, I, I, don't, I don't really look forward to leading a Bible study with a bunch of kids who are running circles around me and aren't really listening to me. And that just, that sounds like Hades on earth for some people. But there's, there's more than just that in serving the children's ministry. So why don't you let us know, what, what would it look like 
if we decided to say yes to serve in the children's ministry? Absolutely. So the most common assumption when you sign up to serve in, children, in children's ministry is, oh my goodness, I'm going to be placed in a classroom to teach. And there's so many different opportunities within the children's ministry where you can serve that are equally as important. You can serve to sign up to be a greeter, as you mentioned earlier, and you're greeting these families who are coming in. You can work at the check-in stations, checking in the children. You can be a SEB. You can be a small group leader. You can even be a recreational leader in the gym on the second floor. There's many and less opportunities that you can serve. So I'm like totally unskilled, and I go in there, and every time they plug me in somewhere, and, and I get to be used, and I get to do something fun, and it's amazing. So there are so many different ways that a person can volunteer. And so don't let this idea in your mind of what children's ministry looks like stop you. Mm -hmm. but, but there's something else I want you to hear. Because in, in the passage of Scripture that we were looking at in John 13, as he's, he said, this, I've given you an example that you should do. He says, if you know this, blessed are you if you do it. In other words, the blessing is found in putting it into practice. So, so we're not asking you to join into something like a, a place of service because you, you got to put in your, your penance before you get to make it into heaven. This isn't, this isn't purgatory or penance. Or this is... This is blessing. God wants you to experience blessing. Blessing is found in obedience to say, I'm willing to serve, even if I get nothing in return from these children. And so, so they have expectation if they go in and serve. So why don't you tell them, what's the blessing? What should they be excited about if they say yes to serve in the children's ministry? So I said earlier, besides getting a cool shirt when you sign up to serve. Yes, true, true. <laughs> is that um, you get to share the gospel with these children um, having Bible conversation with children can be both hilarious because we know that kids say the funniest things, but also very inspirational just to see their childlike faith. Um, intergenerational relationships are such a blessing, not just to the adult, but also to the children as well. And a great example is that you can start building not just lifelong friendships, but community with the people that you serve along with. Yeah. And it's a great way to get plugged into the church. Yeah, and so there, there are many of you, and right now you come in, you love this church, you love the worship services, but you just don't feel connected to anybody. And, and this is one of, the, one of the greatest ways to form relationships is to go serve arm in arm with somebody else. And listen, if you're watching online right now and you're going, like, I, I, I know I need to to get back to the gathering of the church, and I've, I just I didn't know how. One of the best ways you can come is to know there's a need right now, and it's time to jump back in and get connected and start serving arm in arm because you're needed, and you can build relationships and be a part of it. So whether you're in the room or watching online, this is a way for you to connect. But, but think about this for a moment. What if one day in heaven somebody walks up to you and says, hey, I just wanted to tell you I'm here right now because when I was eight years old, you were there and... I was having a hard day and you looked at me and you talked with me and you shared the gospel with me and I placed my faith in Jesus Christ. I promise you, you want that kind of legacy. The children's ministry is a place where you could do that. And like I said before, there are a lot of different places that you can volunteer, but I think we need to have people step up right now and meet this crisis and say, here I am, use me. Now we already have some great volunteers uh, and so I want Jadida to get a chance to see some of those right now. So she's going to step here with me, but if right now you are presently serving in the children's ministry, would you mind standing up for us and stay standing just for a moment because we're going to pray over you. So go ahead and stand up if you're presently serving the children's ministry. So like I said, stay, stay standing. Don't, don't sit back down. I know you all don't like standing up, but just obey your pastor right now in this moment. Keep standing. So I, I hope you see, and I, if you're watching online, you may not be able to see all the people around the room, but there's, there's several dozen around the room who are standing up. Praise God for you. 
You guys are in the trenches day in and day out carrying a heavy load with all these precious children. And I know you do it because you love King Jesus and we're proud of you. And we're going to pray over you in a moment. But I want the rest of you to look around and see, honestly, how few there are in the people in this room. And I know there are many of you who serve in other places, so don't, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But there are many of you, and you know you need to step in and do something. You know you need to be serving. These people need reinforcements. We need more people who be willing to step up and say, here I am, God. I'm willing to say yes. Don't let the excuse any longer be, you know, someone else is going to do it. We need you to say, here I am, I'll do it. And don't use the excuse, uh, serving kids is in my cup of tea. I, I get it. No one wanted to go fill the basin with water or wash anybody else's feet. It was nobody's cup of tea. And Jesus said, I'm going to show you. E even if you don't want to do it, if the need is there, do it. Serve. So I want to challenge you to be willing to step up and say, yes, I'll do it. So with you guys still standing so we can join you, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. If right now you're willing to say yes, maybe you don't even know what all that entails. I promise you, Jadira will walk with you. She'll get you trained. She'll get you ready. She'll put you in the right place. Her team will be there to rally around you. But if you're just willing to say, here I am, God, use me. If this is the need in our church right now, then I'm going to step up and say yes. I'm going to ask you to boldly be willing to step up with these people right now to say, here I am, God, I'll do it. Would you be willing? Praise God. Y'all stay standing. Here's what I believe. I said this in the last service. I'm going to say in this service. There are some of you right now, and you are warring because you feel like if I stand up, I don't know what I'm getting myself into. Here's what I'm asking you to do. Give the Lord the victory in this. He will be with you. If he's calling you, to. I've been praying that you would know it's the Spirit of God. There are some of you right now, and you know it's the Spirit of God. You're just scared to stand up. So I'm going to give it a little bit more time. There's no music playing. There's no, we're not trying to move your heart. If you need to stand up, you stand up right now and say, I'm willing to say yes to the Lord. I'll give you a few more moments and you stand. Praise the Lord. Let's, let's praise the Lord for what he's doing as he's raising up volunteers. Okay, with, with you guys all still standing, one last thing, and then, then we're going to be sent out of here with a couple of announcements. If you are around somebody who's standing, whether they're one of the people who are already working in the children's ministry or they're one of the people who stood up and said, I'm willing to serve, I just want a few of you to gather around them. I want to make sure everybody's got at least one arm on the shoulder or one hand on a shoulder or something because I'm going to want you to pray over them. I, I want to make sure that you pray over them. Now, while they're getting ready, if you're watching online, we're about to, to go off to the host so that you can know what instructions you have because some of you need to be volunteering as well and there are instructions for you. So we're going to kick off to the host for you guys to hear what you need to do. Now in the room, I want everybody to make sure if they're standing up, they have an arm on their shoulder and just, just at least one of you, voice a prayer over them. Commission them to go out and serve. Ask for strength to, to step into this responsibility. Ask for God to move so they can be able to serve in this capacity. So you guys just take a moment and pray over them and then when I feel it, I, I'm ready, I'll, I'll pray and close down this time of prayer.